Good morning. You've got a big church. It took me about a minute to get all the way here then. And it is so good to uh, be with you. I was driving in with some of our Australians this morning, and they said, who's preaching today? And I said, I know I've brought you across the world at me. And like, you are kidding me. I'm like, no, I'm serious. I'm so sorry. And it is so good to be with you all this morning, though. I'm bringing God's word to you. I bring you greetings from Australia, from our Sovereign Grace churches there. Um, as Leo said, the Lord is doing so many things around the world. Sovereign Grace now has the opportunity and the privilege of serving in 45 countries outside the United States. And God is doing so many things, whether it be in Africa or Asia or Europe or Latin America, and it's just amazing. I'd encourage you to try and go on the SGC Missions website, and there's a blog on there, and you'll learn more about who we are and, and what we're doing. But I, in particular, wanted to take a few moments just to thank you for your partnership. See, Sovereign Grace is not a brand. It's not a franchise that we're just taking around the world. It's a family. And when you travel around the world, you realize that's exactly who we are. And I remember many years ago, one of our visions and desires as a family of churches was to no longer just be a really U.S. denomination with global friends, but to truly be a global denomination that happened to start in the United States. And I think that's what's happened. In God's kindness, we've become a global family. But speaking on behalf of a non-American, we're so grateful that it did start here. And we're so grateful for you as a local church and the partnership that we have felt with you for many years. For us in Australia... And we've benefited from your partnership so much. And Mark Prater came over a number of years ago and brought the Prophecy team with him. That was instrumental in our church life. So many of our folk um, believed in the Holy Spirit, believed in the gifts of the Spirit, but never really worked out how that was going to work and happen. And that was just a life-changing time in our church. But it wasn't just that you came. It was then so many of your Prophecy team started to mentor some of our folk. And so our folks feel like they have friends across the world. And they pray for you and hold you dearly. Earlier this year, we had Andy Farmer come out and teach us in counseling and spend time. And looking at all of that, we let him milk a taipan snake while he was in town. That's the way we roll in, in Australia. And you could come as well, and we can give you a dangerous animal. Um, <laughs> but those partnerships for us, they're not just people coming and visiting. They're, they're family and they're friendships that we're making and forging across the world. Just being here last night and hearing of your partnerships in Jamaica and um, Costa Rica and Zambia and Bolivia, they're, they're personal and they're, they're real people. And you're affecting people. When I think of your church, I think of a church of generosity I think a church of support. I think a church that loves to live selflessly to people around the world. And we taste that and we experience that in the way you release so many people to our wider mission. People like Jared, people like Mark Prater, people like Jim, Rob, Leo, Marty, Doug, the list goes on. That says so much not just about your pastoral team, it says so much about you. Because once upon a time when I was in the United Kingdom, I wasn't the one traveling, I was the one staying. And many of you are the ones staying. But thank you for the way you are building this local church. Thank you for your generosity and your support. And so speaking on behalf of Australia, but also so many nations around the world, you are making a difference in communities and in church lives with people you will likely never see nor meet. But they know who you are. 
and they will always be grateful. So thank you so much. You know, if I stopped there, I would be a happy guy. Jared might not be quite as happy if I don't bring God's word to you. And it is a privilege to do that this morning. So let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 19. You know, as we tag into this story in Luke chapter 19, it would be fair to say that if there is one cry on the lips of the disciples in this moment, it would be, are we nearly there yet? It would be the cry of an average eight-year-old when you're on a journey. And it would be understandable because since Luke chapter 9 verse 51... When Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, they've been going for like a long time. Are we nearly there yet? And the good news for the disciples is they are nearly there yet. They're about to pass through Jericho. But before Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, there's one more thing he wants to do. One more one-on-one encounter that he wants to meet, a life he wants to change. And this is this man's story. If you want a title for today's message, I've called it Zacchaeus. The little big man. And we're going to read Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. This is the word of the Lord. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Well, Father, we thank you for all you have done already this morning. Lord, I I sense that we've already sang this message. We've already declared this message. We've already enjoyed in the Lord's Supper this exact message. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you're always on the move amongst us. And that you can do things that no preacher can ever do. You can open blind eyes. You can stir hearts. You can change lives. So, Lord, I pray that primarily it wouldn't be my voice people would hear today, but it would be yours, and that you would stir our affections afresh for you, because you are worthy of all our affection. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You know, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who is one of my theological heroes, as he is many, the famous 19th century preacher, he would preach to a standing room only congregation every week. Morning and night of 5,000 people. That's incredible to me. It's hard enough writing one message. He wrote two every single week. And then he got to know every individual in the church. He knew them all by name. And then in the week, he would give himself to training the next generation. He actually ran a pastor's college. It's where the Sovereign Grace Pastor's College here in the United States was birthed from, that idea. 
When people now say, oh, do you go to the pastor's college? I ask them, well, which one do you mean? Because we have seven pastor's colleges around the world. And, but the original one started here in the United States. And it really was based on Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And one of the most famous things that not so many people know, but one of the most famous things about the Charles Haddon Spurgeon Pastors College was the Question Oak. Now, the Question Oak was a large oak tree that Mr. Spurgeon had in his garden and his estate. And what he would do is he would take all the students on a Friday afternoon and they would gather around this oak tree and they'd be able to ask Mr. Spurgeon any questions that they had on their heart. And then he would pick one of them to preach a message there and then. They would have two minutes to think about what they were going to say and then they'd have to give it. I mean, that would make me very nervous, to be honest, especially if the Prince of Preachers was the one training me. But that's what they did. And on one particular occasion, they gather around the oak tree and he looks at this one young man and he says, right, here's what we're going to do. Zacchaeus. He gives him two minutes to think about it. And this guy is like, what am I going to say? And then he comes out with, he's a cheeky Englishman. On one memorable occasion, this young man, he stands up and he goes, okay, I've got it. You will take a seat. All right. And this is what he says. Zacchaeus was a little man and so am I. Well, they're all giggling and laughing because they're like, what is this guy on? What is he doing? At which point he starts to scale the tree. He's climbing up the tree. And he gets as high as he can and then he shouts down from the tree, Zacchaeus was up a tree. So am I. At which point he then climbs down the tree and jumps off into the people. And he's like, Zacchaeus came down a tree. So will I. Well, Mr. Spurgeon is laughing. He's clapping. This is what happens when, when young students get together, particularly when they're all boys. This type of thing becomes hilarious. So these guys are laughing away that it's all taking place. They all think this is so much fun. There's laughter and applause taking place. And the truth is, when you often hear about Zacchaeus' story... It does seem somewhat amusing, does it not? His escapades land in, on ourselves as a fun story because here we have a story of a little man perched up a tree like a bird and as you imagine the scene, you can't help but think, this seems rather funny. Likewise, this is the stuff of children's songs, is it not? When I was declaring, when I was preparing for this message, there were numerous songs going through my mind. For those of you that have grown up in church, they're probably the same ones as you. Zacchaeus was a very little man, and a very little man was he. You get it? You're trying to write a message as a pastor, and all you've got in your mind is this type of stuff going through your head. But this type of story, I think, lends itself to a fun escapade, to imagination, to things that come in our minds. And that could be fun. It could be good to engage with a story like that. But we must understand that behind the humor and behind the joking is a very serious story of a man who has his life completely and utterly turned around by the Lord Jesus Christ. His man, his story is completely changed by the encounter with Jesus Christ. This is the last one-on-one encounter Jesus has with anybody prior to giving his life away as a ransom to many, uh, for many in Jerusalem. This is a significant moment in the story. And when you examine the text in context, it is huge what is going on. Jesus has just told us in chapter 18, verse 25, that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. He gives the whole story of the rich young ruler 
And the rich young ruler, he wants in. He wants to become a Christian. He wants to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, well, listen, if you're going to follow me, I've got to be the greatest treasure in your life. And therein lies the problem because Jesus wasn't his greatest treasure. His greatest treasure was his stuff. And so I don't, don't want to follow you if it's going to cost me that. I, I want to keep my treasure. At which point the disciples interview Jesus and say, well, listen, so many people are wealthy. How is anybody going to become a Christian if it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle? At which point he tells them, what is impossible for man is possible with God. And then just a few verses later, we have the story of Zacchaeus, a rich man, whose life is radically encountered by Jesus Christ, and he is gloriously saved. When you examine this story, you get engrossed in what is happening in the actual story. But the incredible news for each one of us here this morning is although the details of our stories may be different to Zacchaeus, in headline, they are exactly the same. And I want to show us that this morning. And I want us to realize by God's grace that just like with Zacchaeus, we too have 10,000 reasons to praise. I have two points this morning. Number one, the encounter attended. I want us to examine this text. And then number two, the encounter applied. But really one hope that we'd not only see how great Jesus is this morning, and he is great and worthy of all our praise, but as we see him in all his glory, we would also see that our story is the same. What a neat opportunity on Reformation Sunday to stop and stare at what Jesus has done in our life and the salvation that is all of grace. Two points then. Here's the first, the encounter attended. And by way of background, We learn about Zacchaeus in verses 1 through 3. Let's look at it together. He said, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. From a tax collecting perspective, Zacchaeus was an incredibly wealthy man. From a tax collecting perspective, he had it made. There were three major places in the country at this time where you could earn a killing. Capernaum was one of them. Jericho was one of them. Jerusalem was another. Zacchaeus, we're told by Dr. Luke, was a chief tax collector in the middle of one of those in, in Jericho. Jericho had a ton of trade gone through it. It was really the link between the east and the west of Jerusalem. And whenever it came through, he would be taking taxes and he would be making a lot of money. Jericho itself was indeed a place of great wealth. They had great palm forests there and balsam groves. There was a lot of money to be made. And Zacchaeus, we are told, is the kingpin of it all. If this was Amway, he's at the top of the tree. You know? He has got it going on. He is raking in a ton of money. He is filthy rich and everybody knows it. And yet the challenge is, his money has come at great cost. And the great cost is he is hated by his own people. They hate him. And they hate everything he stands for. If you went on his Facebook account, you'd find he's got zero friends. No one liked Zacchaeus. And there's reasons for that. You know, when you examined his life, you would have to say he was both a thief and a traitor. See, all tax collectors were known as thieves. They would take the money that was owed to them, and then they would profit as much for themselves as they could squeeze out. They would take what they should and take more. They were renowned for their corruption, for their extortion, for their dishonesty. 
That's why tax collectors were excommunicated from the local synagogues. They weren't allowed to go to church, in effect. They were treated as Gentiles because they were thieves and everybody knew it. And they were traitors. I mean, they were cavorting with the enemy. The superpower that was Rome that was coming in and taking over. They were selling their souls to the Romans so they could get wealthy off it. Everybody hated them. No one wanted to be around young Zacchaeus. He was a despised nobody. He was the most unlikely candidate on the planet for the kingdom of God. But the grace of God had other ideas. And in God's grace, Zacchaeus heard on this given day that Jesus was passing through town. Well, everybody knew who Jesus was and everybody would want to see him. And Zacchaeus was no exception. Everybody had heard of Jesus by now. Jesus is this guy that is stilling the storms. Jesus is this guy who's preaching in the synagogue and when demonic things happen, he tells the demons to leave and they do. Jesus is the one who heals the sick. He tells the paralytic to get up and walk and to carry his mat out. He tells blind Bartimaeus, you can see, and in a moment he can see, everybody wants to be around Jesus. And Zacchaeus is no exception. He wants to see and encounter Jesus on this day. But in verse 3, we're told the crowd isn't exactly wrapped about letting Zacchaeus in. And Zacchaeus, we are instructed, is small in stature. Now, that doesn't just mean he's small in height, but he is small in height. I mean, to give you a clue to reference, Zacchaeus was probably only an inch or two bigger than Andy Farmer. I mean, he was a small... He was a small guy. Okay, so I mean, it's good to try and get in the story, and that's just giving you some helpful intel right there. So Zacchaeus was a small man, but he was also small in stature, and in the way that's worded, you realize it wasn't just that he was small, it was as he's approaching the crowd, no one wants to let you in. I mean, I remember when I used to live in the United States, um, in Gatorsburg, and people would ask you in the shops, have a nice day. I'm having a lovely day. Are you having a good day? I'm having a great day. And then the same people, when you're trying to get out of the car park, would get their cars like really close to the next one so you can't pull out. I was having a nice day, but I'm not having a nice day right now. And that's what's happening in the crowd in this moment. They can see Zacchaeus coming, and they're closing ranks. It's Zacchaeus coming. Don't let him in. It's him. He's, oh, he's a jerk. Just come in. Stand close. Sorry, Zacchaeus. No room. No room. There's still no room. No room. That's what they're doing. They don't want to let this guy in. He's small, and he's small in stature. But Zacchaeus got rich because he was a wise and sneaky little man. And he sees a tree. Look at verse 4. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. A sycamore tree is a tree that's about 10 to 12 meters high. It's got a short trunk and wide branches. It would be an easy tree to climb. And so that's exactly what Zacchaeus does. He climbs this tree. He's slightly above the crowd. He can now see, and there he sits, perched like a bird and completely alone as a tax collector that's reviled by everybody underneath him. He would be peering out of those leaves like an orphan in a film. He's just looking, and then he sees Jesus. He sees this one that he's heard about, starting to walk through and down the street. And then the incredible happens. Look at verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. 
So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Oh my, this is a remarkable scene, is it not? I mean, for a start, Jesus knows his name. Well, that's a shock. It wouldn't appear that they've met before now. And so you imagine you're sitting in a tree, peering through a branch, and then somebody calls you out. Zacchaeus must have been amazed in this moment, and his heart must have already been warmed, because it would appear that this celebrity of the day, this king, knows his name. How does he know my name? I'll tell you why he knows your name, Zacchaeus. Because this is God incarnate. This is the one who was and is and is to come. This is the one in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily. Zacchaeus, this is the one who is there, who knitted you together in your mother's womb. That's exactly why he knows your name. Zacchaeus' heart is beginning to be warmed. And how much more must it have been warmed when Jesus says to him, Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. That is not a very English thing to say. I mean, you might say, is there any chance I could come to your house? Or it might be nice if I could. No, no, I must stay at your house today. Why does he say, I must stay at your house? I'll tell you why. Because this moment was ordained before the foundation of the earth. This moment was called out by God before the earth was even on its axis. The crossing of their lives at this sycamore tree was a work of divine providence and sovereign grace. The reason why Jesus must pass through is because there is a man that by the grace of God and for the glory of God is going to be saved today. And Jesus is going to encounter him at this sycamore tree and completely change his life. In this moment, Zacchaeus must have been amazed. He knows my name. And he wants to come to my house. No one comes to my house. Everybody hates me. He wants to come to my house. Zacchaeus in this moment is filled with joy. Not so the people around them. Verse 7, everybody's grumbling. The disciples are probably standing there again going, oh, not again, please. We've already got one tax collector. We don't want another one. They must have been wondering in this moment, what is going on? There's already 12 of us. You know, we're kind of full. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on. The crowd is grumbling, everybody is grumbling, but Zacchaeus, oh my, he is filled with great joy. Kent Hughes says it this way. He says, the glad leap with which Zacchaeus left the tree, twigs and leaves flying, may have revealed to Zacchaeus himself, as it no doubt did to the bystanders, what it was that he had been dimly wishing for all along. From here on, apart from the crowd's muttering, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. There was only joy for Zacchaeus, pure joy. Zacchaeus was amazed. Jesus wants to come to my house. Well, Zacchaeus did indeed come to his house. He spent the whole evening with Zacchaeus. It would be common in this tradition that as a rabbi, your disciples would come with them. So I don't know whether they just, oh gosh, we're going to have to go. They're all there. They spend the evening talking to Zacchaeus about why Jesus has come because it would appear that his life this evening has been radically changed. You know, we read in God's Word in Romans 10 verse 9, we read that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. It is a fact of life. It's across all geography, all generations, all nationalities. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. See, going to church doesn't save you. Going to McDonald's doesn't make you a burger. You know, going to church does not make you saved. 
Praying doesn't make you saved per se. Doing good work to charity definitely doesn't save you. But when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, in a moment, boom. In a moment, you go from death to life and blindness to sight. In a moment, your life is changed. And it would appear in this very moment, that's what happens to Zacchaeus. I want to follow you. Jesus, you've changed my life. I, I want to be in. I want to follow you. And you can tell that salvation has come to his house because of what we begin to read in verse 8. This man's life has been radically turned around and changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8. It said, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. See, for starters, Zacchaeus commits to giving half of everything he had to the poor. His life is being radically turned around in this moment. The most important treasure in the room is no longer his stuff. The most important treasure in the room is Jesus. I said, Jesus, I want to be with you. I want to follow you. I'll give it all away. I don't care. Because this ain't my treasure anymore. You're my treasure. And so at this very moment, he commits to giving half of everything he had to the poor. And then out of everything else he has left, the remaining 50%, he vows to make restitution with everybody who he, he has robbed, the tune of four times the amount that he took. The rich young ruler in chapter 18, he failed that test. Because the greatest treasure in the room for the rich young ruler was his treasure. It was his stuff. Zacchaeus passes it with flying colors. Because, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to be a part of what you are doing. I want to honor you, and I want to follow you in my life. Kent Hughes again says it this way. He says, this little man had become a big one. Acceptance by God had given this tax collector what he had vainly sought after through the accumulation of wealth, namely wholeness and satisfaction. The compulsive drive to make money was gone. He no longer needed his wealth. Instead of the passion to get he now had the passion to give. For he had entered his house, the littlest man in Jericho, but he left it, the biggest man in town, all because of Jesus. And so he did. His life has been radically affected by Jesus. It tells us in James chapter 2, verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Listen, we're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, are we not? We're saved by faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone. It's all because of Jesus. But when that faith is real, it is never actually alone. Did you recognize that? You know, we're never saved by works. Our works don't merit our salvation. They don't earn it or deserve it. But they do mark it and exhibit it and demonstrate it because they offer lives that are living sacrifices to the Lord because the greatest treasure in our life becomes Him. And that's what's happened to Zacchaeus in this moment. You can take it all. Because Jesus is the greatest treasure of my life. You can see it in the way he is starting to live. And to make it explicit, Jesus gives us a divine declaration of exactly what has taken place. In verse 9, it says, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. You know, there must have been many in the crowd in this moment working out, you know, well, that's pretty weird. I thought he was a son of Abraham before. He's a Jew. Well, it doesn't quite work like that. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, we read, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The sons of Abraham isn't about ancestry. It's about faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And Jesus himself is declaring, this is a happy day. 
Because today Zacchaeus has become a son of Abraham. And in verse 10, to complete this story, Jesus and gives us his divine mission. It's beautiful. The last one-in-one -one encounter. And he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's beautiful. He then begins to proceed to make his way to Jerusalem, where he will give his life away as a ransom for many. But his mission is to come to seek and save the lost. We see that in chapter 18 with blind Bartimaeus, a man who is lost in blindness and poverty. He's the poorest of the poor. Boom! Jesus saves him in a moment. And then in chapter 19, we have the story of Zacchaeus, the man who is lost in wealth and corruption. The other end of the scale. Boom! No match for the grace of God. You know where we fit? Somewhere in the middle of those two things is where we fit. Jesus Christ has come to seek and to save the lost. And what that includes, my friends, is each and every one of us. It is a staggering work of His grace. But your story and my story is really not that much different to His. Just like Zacchaeus, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Just like Zacchaeus, you were at enmity with God. You were at hostility with God. And you had no way out of it. You were so far down the mine, you could not get out of it by yourself. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son on the greatest rescue mission ever told. He lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death and then rose again as a victorious Redeemer. And then at just the right time, when He saw you on your sycamore tree, He came to you. He walked into your life in divine providence at exactly the right time and He called your name. Jared, I'm coming to your house today. Susan, I'm coming to your house today. Hey, Riley, come down from the tree because I'm coming to your house today. Today, salvation's coming to your house. My friends, we are only here because in the grace of God, he called your name. And if he hadn't, you would not be here. You would not be interested. You would be far from the Lord. Our salvations are all of grace from start to finish. And what does that mean? What that means is just like Zacchaeus, we have 10,000 reasons to praise, do we not? Just like Zacchaeus, we have so much to thank the Lord for. Because we're only here because just the right time, He intercepted us in that sycamore tree. Hey, I'm having you. Come and be with me. Because I want to save you by my grace. But how do we respond to this? How do we apply this? That's my second and final point, the encounter applied. Because I do think this needs to be applied. There's things we can learn from this text. There's things we can enjoy. There's a heart disposition which we can respond to in grace before the Lord. How do we respond? Well, three things. The first way we respond, I think, is with humility before God. Humility. Mark Webb says it this way. He says, God intentionally designed salvation so that no man might boast of it. He didn't merely arrange it so that boasting would be discouraged or kept to a minimum. No, he planned it so that boasting would be absolutely excluded. So he did, my friends. Consider your calling, brothers. My friends, we were far from the Lord. We were uninterested from the Lord, but he has called your name. 
What exactly did you bring to your salvation? Well, your sin. Everything else is Jesus, okay? Everything else is the Lord. It's all his mighty, saving, wonderful, glorious work. You contribute your sin. He does everything else. For consider your calling, brothers, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. My friends, I want to encourage you this morning. Your salvation is all of grace. From start to middle to end, it is all of grace. And that's why I submit to you, when you realize that your story is no different to Zacchaeus's, we should be walking through those doors on a Sunday, the most humble people you've ever met. Amazed. Amazed that I'm only here because he called my name. I wasn't really interested in the Lord. I wasn't really looking for him. I mean, I'd heard he was a bit popular, so I sat in a sycamore tree, but then he called me, and he called me down, and he died in my place, and he forgave me of my sin, and redeemed me, and adopted me. Listen, to gather around the realities of doctrine, of providence, and God's sovereign grace, I think is to be deeply humbled. It's hard to be proud when you gather around the cross, isn't it? But when you stop and stare at what he's done for us, and then you stop and stare that I was an enmity with you, uninterested in you, but you called my name. I think we should respond to with humility before God, amazed. Secondarily, I think we should respond with assurance from God. See, here's the thing. If we were the ones that authored and started our faith, then one would assume you could surely lose it. But what if you weren't the one that started it? What if he was the one that started it all? And in the Bible, that's what you discover is the truth. He is the one that stands at the bottom of it all. When you were dead in your transgressions, sins, and blind and uninterested, he came after you. Paul says it this way in Romans 8. He says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? His point is, listen, it's all God. It's all Him by His grace. You are dead in your transgressions and sins. You are uninterested. But just at the right time in your life, having chosen you before the foundation of the earth, He walks up to your sycamore tree and He calls your name. And as that individual shares the gospel with you, He makes it an effectual calling. And He calls your name and you feel it. You respond in faith and you're quite proud of that. And then you read in Ephesians, even the faith is a gift from God. And you realize it's him again. It's all Jesus. Here's the thing. If it started with him, it will end with him. Because though he predestined, he called. And those he calls, he justifies. And guess what? If you're justified, you're going to make it. Because he will glorify you. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us, I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I'm sure of it. We say in Britain there's only two things you can be sure of, death and taxes. 
Paul says there's three things, death and taxes. And if you are a Christian, you will make it because he will hold you fast. He is the one that will sustain you. He is the one that gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing your inheritance. He will hold you fast. It's so important then that we keep the main thing the main thing. But the more we do that, the more we will see the main thing keeps us. He holds us and he will do until the day we die and we go be with him. Because he is the one that grips us and we hide in his wings. It is the most unusual place to potentially find assurance from God. But seen correctly, this is assurance. He called your name and now he's never going to be leaving your name. For all that the Father has given him, he will lose none. Such is his sovereignty and his providence and his grace. What a happy discovery, don't you think? For many years of my life, I thought I could lose my salvation. So I was a legalist by nature and I would depend on whether I was sitting the front or the back, depending on how I felt I was going. Well, listen, you could just all rock on up the front <laughs> because he's justified you. And if he's justified you, he will glorify you and he will hold you fair. And what you also see then by way of response finally is gratitude towards God. You know, you, you can tell already you are a happy church and we have much to be happy about, do we not? Much to be grateful to the Lord about. J.I. Packer puts it this way. He says, to know that from eternity... My maker, foreseeing my sin, for loved me and resolved to save me, though it would be at the cost of Calvary. To know that the divine Son was appointed from eternity to be my Savior, and that in love He became man for me and died for me and now lives to intercede for me, and will one day come in person to take me home. To know that the Lord, who loved me and gave Himself up for me, and who came and preached peace to me through His messengers, has by His Spirit raised me from spiritual death, to life-giving union and communion with himself, and has promised to hold me fast and never let me go. This is knowledge that brings overwhelming gratitude and joy, is it not? This is knowledge that should bring in our hearts overwhelming gratitude and joy. Why? Is it because when you become a Christian, everything is sweetness and light? Negative. We walk through difficult things, do we not? You know, there is a pastor's wife in Belarus at the minute that is awaiting to go to prison for two years for holding up a poster of a Bible verse to try and help people. And yet what you discover as you encounter her is she is filled with joy. She's filled with joy because she counts it as an honor to stand with Jesus and suffer like Jesus. But more than that, she's in a happy place because she knows, you know what, the only reason why I'm here at all is because he called my name. Because before the foundation of the earth, he knew me and he called me and he died in my place. And at the right time, he called my name and he forgave me and redeemed me and adopted me. So I don't want to go to prison. But if I have to go to prison for the glory of God, then so be it. And I will get in there and I will tell people about Jesus. And she's filled with joy. And she's grateful because she's reminded what the main thing is. That my name is written in the book of the Lamb. My friends, it's so easy to think of Zacchaeus just as a story or just as a kid's song. But it's so much more than that. It's a trip down memory lane for every believer there is. A reminder of our own great stories. And I submit to you then just like with Zacchaeus, we too have 10,000 reasons to praise. And may we never stop giving thanks. 
Would humility and assurance and gratitude always be our themes? And would all glory and all gaze then go to Jesus? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you for the joy that it has been this morning to once again go down memory lane. To realize that our story is really not that much different to young Zacchaeus. Lord, I thank you for calling our name. I thank you that out of millions lost, you in divine mercy and grace and in love that we can barely even fathom, you stopped for us. You called our names. And you did it even as you were making your way to die in our place. Oh Lord, may we never stop giving thanks. Would we never stop being amazed? Would you always be the apple of our eye? You are worthy of all praise. In Jesus' precious name, amen.